The following podcast was recorded on Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, featuring Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. To hear the podcast in real time, you can sign up for a free trial at biancoresearch.com or arborresearch.com or by emailing Gus Handler directly at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. You can also call Arbor Research and Trading at 1-800-606-1872. Thanks for your time and enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone to our latest edition of Talking Data. I'm Kristen Radish of Arbor Research and Trading, and I'm joined today by Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about the rebound in U.S. Treasuries. Jim, get us started talking about the 10-year note. Uh, yields have retreated back down below 1.6%. What's the latest? Yeah, so let's back up even before that. Back last August, they were trading at 50 basis points. And by the last week of March, we hit 1.77%. So we had a pretty relentless 120 basis point rise in yields. And then in the first couple of weeks of April, we saw them turn around and they've traded down as low as 153. And that was highlighted a week ago with a move when of that roughly 25 basis point move, 10 or 11 basis points of it came one day, exactly a week ago today <clears throat> as well too. So I think it's been more driven by the move from 50 basis points to 177 came with constant chatter about inflation, reflation, the economy picking up, people turning bearish on bonds, that by late March, it was, the bearishness in the bond market was very apparent and very substantial. One measure to give you is there's a service called Consensus Inc. They get dozens of newsletters and sell side brokerage house research, and they publish a number of the percentage of them that they would classify as bullish and the rest of them are either neutral or bearish. And by the last week of March, they were saying 19% is what they saw on the bond market and that that equaled an 18 year low. That's how bearish everybody was on the bond market. So we had this rally back. Now I suspect that we're probably gonna see a little bit more in the rally. I am suggesting that it is technical in nature that the news of the base effect with higher inflation was already priced into the market. And I'm also suggesting here that I don't think we've seen the high yield of the year. I think that's still to come, although I think we'll probably see yields go down a little bit more. And then everybody will proclaim that 177 was the high yield of the year. And then we go to 2%. That's, that's you know the contrarian call of how markets seem to work. Benjamin, how about you? What say you about the bond market? Yeah, I think you know it is a lot of kind of technical. We're kind of working out uh, some extreme oversold conditions, bearishness. The at the root, excuse me, at the root of it, the economic data continues to remain quite sound. We've gotten nothing but you know solid payrolls last month. It looks like it's going to continue into April. You know, expecting somewhere around 800 to 900 thousand jobs added. The reflation trade still continues, and the only thing that I'll, I will say is that since February, I think most of the rise in yield is due to, like you're saying, reflation, but also the market's pricing in hikes uh, to a certain extent, even if the Fed doesn't think that's going to happen or they want to communicate it's not going to happen until 2023, 2024. 
But if you look at nominal yields, the, the correlation is significantly higher to the real yield component than to tips break-evens or inflation expectations. So it's been real yields that have been kind of driving uh, the ship, and those have those have pulled back. And I, I, maybe it's the market saying, okay, fine, maybe the Fed won't be as hawkish, um, but we don't know. Um, but I think a lot of it is what you just said. It's, it's, it's bearishness. And one way to measure that is we run a really simple strategy. Let's look at like a, tw- a one-month rolling breakout of yields and when you break the new high you, know, you have a, a bearish signal to higher yields new uh, you hit a new low uh, you know you've seen a breakout to the low side and so on and this most recent bearish signal has been in pl- was in place for 166 consecutive trading days it's actually the longest on record so in cer- some way the trend the bear trend uh, in 10-year yields in terms of rising yields was the most protracted that we've really seen in history, exceeding uh, the highest uh, previous high, which was around 155 days or so back in 1969. Now, habitually, yields do fall uh, after this, and they fall by somewhere around 70 basis points or so over the ensuing three months. Doesn't seem like we'll get that in this circumstance. Um, uh, I think that there's too much inertia, I agree with you, on the reflation side to keep yields ultimately going higher, you know, maybe um, not now, but, you know, months from now. And uh, I think this, uh, you know, investors were at a place too where the sharp ratios on treasuries were getting just awful. So if you look at the strips curve from two years all the way up to 30 years and look at the risk-adjusted returns, essentially the sharp ratios on a rolling six-month basis, that hit negative two and a half. Uh, which is just abysmal, and and that's uh, near some of the worst risk-adjusted returns investors have ever faced, uh, looking back to the 60s and 70s. And so again, oversold signals everywhere and anywhere. I think the churn will be here for a little bit. We have a week of no econ data. I mean, this is a week you could have fallen asleep if you really wanted to and not paid attention. Um, and uh, I, I agree with Jim. I think ultimately the reflation trade will take hold. And the big question mark, like you've always talked about, Jim, too, is the inflation side. Um, will that finally show up? And could that, I mean, that's the leg that's needed in order to really drive yields higher and get that 2%, 2.5% tenure. Jim, next, could you touch on the role of uh, COVID and also stimulus wearing off when you're talking about you touched before on what's on the horizon? How will those two factors come into play? Yeah, on the COVID side, I think that um, it's interesting because if you look at the U.S. numbers and say the U.K. numbers, they look really good. The COVID numbers are down. Uh, The U.K. numbers are actually down so much. I'm talking about new COVID infections in the U.K. are now below traffic, uh, traffic injuries. More people in the U.K. every day are injured in traffic accidents than are contracting COVID. So that's how far that their numbers have fallen. In the U.S., uh, the numbers are down. There's one um, curious exception, which is the state of Michigan. Not even the state of uh, Indiana or Illinois or Ohio is experiencing what's happening in Michigan, but they're almost back to their old highs. But other than Michigan, the numbers in the U.S. are down. That's got everybody optimistic that we're going to have a reopening. We're going to have booming growth. and all of the positives coming from it, and we're attaching that to a successful vaccine program. All true, all right. Go look at the rest of the world. Uh, It's very possible that by tomorrow morning, the rolling seven-day average of global infections will make a new high, a new high now, led by an absolute spike to 300,000 cases a day in India, 
its old high was like 70,000 DK. Iraq, Iran, South America, and Japan are all seeing caseloads just spiking right now. So the rest of the world, we're not seeing the cases fall as we would want to. There's a couple of theories. One of them is a variant. Uh, the other one is the slow vaccine rollouts um, as well too. But ultimately, I guess the COVID argument comes down to, do we need global herd immunity or do we need your country herd immunity? Right now in the US, we think country herd immunity is good enough. Let's get 75% of Americans vaccinated. We're good to open. But if we if global herd immunity is where we need to go, we're going in the wrong direction when it comes to that. And it's showing up in the Asia Pacific markets. They're starting to severely underperform the European and American markets because they're being dragged down by COVID. The Olympics are at risk now because of the spike um, in Japan as well, too. Well, also, too, Jim, we, we, we've learned that how important the supply chain is. And some of those countries you just rattled off are critical to you know the global supply chain. And like you've been talking about, uh, we have some of the highest from the survey, some of the highest indications of uh, you know, delivery times of getting some of these intermediate goods and other goods to uh, these manufacturers. Um, I think it's the highest almost on record. And at some point, um, you know, if, if COVID does remain a problem in these, if it's Japan, if it's even uh, portions of the Middle East, Brazil, which has a lot of commodities, that's gonna be a problem um, for the supply chain. And that just means that gets extended out even further. And maybe that does create the more of this reason for pent up inflation at some point too, um, uh, under that event. So uh, curious to see how that ultimately brews and, and you know what that does. One thing I've noticed as of late, Jim, that I didn't bring up with you recently, but I will now, is that it's interesting with the pandemic and we had this big burst in flexible inflation as of late. If you look at three month annualized, it's just on a tear, well over 10% on a real uh, analyzed three month basis. What's interesting is a sticky component is now the most correlated on record to the flexible component. Typically, you know, flexible is just a bunch of noise. It's about, it goes all over, you know, back and forth and, and sticky just kind of meanders lower and lower and lower. But over the past three, uh, three years now, and if you really just focus on the past 12 months, all of a sudden we have this really tight connection, which is weird in that maybe that means some of this transitory flexible inflation is actually bleeding over to sticky and actually pulling it higher for the first time uh, we've seen in a long time. Um, and like I said, so that correlation is worth watching. That's the highest um, on record. It's interesting. Uh, on the second half of uh, Kristen's question too, stimulus. Um, I'll come back to my broken record argument. We have pumped a tremendous amount of stimulus in the economy. The savings rate is at 20%, which is other than last year, far and away an all time high relative to anything we saw pre-pandemic as well too. People have money stuffed in their pockets. If you give them any kind of optimism that the economy is opening, you could see a big spend on that number as well too. What if we don't get inflation? I've argued this, you know, that we've already sent out three checks. The infrastructure bill actually has more checks that would go out, not as to the extent of the previous one, but it would still send out more checks as well too. We'll keep doing this stimulus until there's a consequence. There's no reason to stop. If, if we keep sending out um, money and only good things happen, we'll keep doing more of it. So the stimulus, I think, will definitely stay there, at least for now. We've done enough that we could probably see some kind of a residual effect in it as well, too. 
Uh, Jim, I think that's that. Pick up the third question if you go ahead and ask it, and I'll I'll go first here, Krista. Okay. Okay, sure. Because next, let's touch on uh, the role of central banks. If you want to take that, then to wrap it yeah, up. Yeah. So that gets right, that gets right to what Jim's talking about. It, you know, inflation is really the boogeyman for them. And uh, you know, if 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 and even Powell kind of seemed to don't you think Jim backed away from that in that open letter that he had a couple of days ago, basically saying that okay, we'll let inflation run hot, but we don't want to see it you know persist for a long period of time. I don't know if he meant six months or so above two and a half three percent. It felt like he was walking it back a little bit. Um, I I agree. I agree. Yeah. Whatever happened to I'm not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising. Right. Great. And now you're talking about, well, there's a limit on the upside where yep. I might do something like, wow, where did this come from? It doesn't mean he's going to raise rates this year, right. but he does seem to have at least opened the door to some kind of walking back. So that's what I think, you know, the, I think for now, the Fed and, you know, they, they feel comfortable. And this I think this little bit of pullback in yields, obviously, is is took has taken some of the pressure off them. And yes, the market uh, from the euro dollar Fed funds futures has kind of pulled back a little bit the, the rate hike expectations, but not a lot. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, the things look really good for them right now. But I think when you check back in three months and it feels like, the Fed is is not necessarily it doesn't have lack the sensitivity to inflation. And one thing I I look at too is how much agreement is you know kind of discussed with amongst Fed officials, and that keeps plummeting, um, showing that you know Fed officials aren't as in agreement as everyone uh, thinks they are. And there's some kind of discussions happening amongst them regarding inflation and what's tolerable or not. And Ben, I'll throw in one other thing too. Um, our friends to the north, the Canadians, they started tapering uh, literally today, uh, uh, the day that we're starting the talk. So, they, of course, they're a more commodity-based economy, and you know, commodity prices have been booming higher. So they're a little bit further out on the curve than the rest of us. Um, you know, so that's going to get noticed at the Fed. I don't know if that's going to that's not going to change policy, but it is a move towards hawkishness. Um, as well too. So there is this generalized belief in the market that the Fed says, oh, we're not going to raise rates for several years. And everybody looks at them and goes, yeah, I don't believe you. Uh, I don't think you're raising them this year. I don't think you're raising them in the next year. So, you know, nothing's imminent going to happen. But 2024, nah, I'm not going to buy that. That seems to be what the, the consensus is in, in the marketplace right now. And Oh, sort of, you're right, kind of open the door to that with this, you know, we won't let it run too hot kind of uh, argument. Well, thank you both for your thoughts today. And thank you everyone for joining us. As a reminder, Arbor Research and Trading is an institutional research and brokerage firm. For further information on Arbor Research, Bianca Research, or Arbor Data Science, please contact Gus Handler at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. Thanks everyone.